0: Living the Dream acknowledges the traditional owners of the land it is recorded on, especially the Jagera and Turrbal peoples, elders past, present and future, and their continuing struggles for justice and self-determination. Hello, you're listening to Living the Dream. You're here with Dave. I'm really lucky today because I've been joined by Godfrey Mose, who is the uh, General Branch Assistant Secretary of the National Union of Workers. How are you, Godfrey?
1: Um, well, thanks, Dave. Thanks and, thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, no worries. And where can people find you on Twitter? Uh,
1: at G-E-Mose, uh, M-O-A-S-E. And you also
0: have a blog, is that correct? Tradeunion.wordpress.com?
1: I do. I'm been very... Uh, lacks with updating my blog, although I have continued my writing in, in various forms.
0: Oh, okay. So where else can people find your written work? Uh,
1: probably some of the Overland website has some of the more recent stuff as well. Yeah.
0: Excellent. Excellent. And now listeners might be interested that Godfrey is joining us today because... Godfrey made online a number of criticisms of our recent podcast on the on the changes to penalty rates and the penalty rates campaign, and we, you know, we approached Godfrey and said, "Well, would you like to um, have a platform to maybe make those criticisms?" And he said yes, and I'm super excited um, about that. I guess do you have to say something that everything you're about to say is in a personal capacity or something along those lines?
1: Uh... Yeah, I should. Um, I'm not going to pretend to speak for the collective of our union members without consulting them. Um, So yeah, I guess this is just me as a good comrade trying to progress the strategic discussion along.
0: That sounds fantastic. So uh, just to throw you into it, Godfrey, you weren't happy with our latest podcast. Would you be able to tell us what you think we got wrong?
1: Uh, Actually, you know, it was pretty good overall. I mean, I took the time to listen to it and I don't do that with most podcasts (laughs) and so I would class myself as a fan of the podcast I wouldn't get uh, um, I think what it was to me though is was probably just some uh, elements of of nuance that that were missing in terms of of the discussion uh, and not Obviously, they're not the biggest things, Mm. those elements of nuance, but I think that they're a barrier towards us progressing um, the discussion and progressing the sorts of actions that we need to take in Mm. order to not live under the yoke of the capitalist system. Mm -hmm. Um, So, look, probably I could clarify um, what my actual... Criticisms were um, down into a couple of points, but like the the. I, let me just be clear. Like the podcast episode itself was a really interesting discussion, um, and I think it's an important thing to keep talking about. Um, but probably the two things um, that I would really go to um, is that. <sighs> And, I get, and it's not a criticism of... People aren't really aware of this because it's not put out there, but mm. I think when we as radicals are approaching the trade union movement uh, and making criticisms of that trade union movement, I think we need to see it as um, a, a site of greater contestation and instability uh, uh, in that regard. Uh, and it's therefore kind of... Uh, more useful in terms of being able to make interventions and pushing various unions to do things and getting actions to occur yeah. and to, to happen. So, like, I myself am within the trade union hierarchy. I'm, I occupy a position of contradiction as a, as a union leader. Um, you know, in, in some senses, there is an element of, of union work that is inherently conservative with a small C in the sense that you're dealing with people who um, quite rightfully just... Uh, want to keep living the life that they're living yeah. uh, and, and not be interrupted by all sorts of continuous revolutions uh, in the economic system and uh, and in the realm of production. Uh, and there is an element of conservatism natural to the role or inherent in the role that um, comes with being a trade union leader. But it's not like they're all of all the various trade union leaders around the country are of, of one mind all of the time. There are all these conflicting and competing and contradictory and kind of intermingling um, tendencies. Whether that is um, uh, and relate and relationship networks. Whether that's based around um, sometimes factions within the Labor Party or distance uh, away from the Labor Party. Whether that's um, uh, so factionally, or whether that more interestingly and, and more commonly whether that's people taking different views or representing members from different parts of the economic system about um, where we are in terms of energy transitions, uh, what we need to do in terms of politics in general versus the industrial struggle, and um, and where all that where all that fits in. So, um, I, I think I would. Like the trade union movement is made up of so many different workers, delegates, workplaces, branches, leaders, tendencies that it's not one it's not one homogenous movement um, that we can capitalize and say that trade union movement, even amongst the various peak bodies. You'll have the national one and the state ones and various tendencies and conflicts within that. I think it's kind of useful to return to a bit more of the old school kind of communist thinking of it as a, as a terrain of struggle. Um, because while it, there is an inherent conservative tendency and with, within that there's an, also bound within that an inherent liberatory kind of... Uh, tendency where the trade union movement is is also a vehicle for workers to take control of their workplaces and democratically um, uh, own and manage them and run them so that's probably one i don't i don't think i've put that criticism in a particularly succinct manner but i think it's i think we've got to be careful talking about the trade union leadership yeah. as a monolithic entity because it it shuts down organising opportunities and way for, and the way forward for the radical left mm. to, to, to take greater power and build power.
0: Yeah, you know that's super interesting, Godfrey, because I guess you know, part of me is is well, I feel myself kind of caught between kind of two positions often when it comes to trade unions. And, you know, I am a trade union member and, you know, have been at various different times active in my workplace and that's had an engagement with the trade union. I feel I always need to kind of preface these kind of criticisms. And on one hand, you know, I've often found kind of more ultra-left arguments appealing that basically sees trade unions as that kind of homogenous body that serve a fundamentally conservative role because they just negotiate the sale of wage labour. Yet, Mm. on the other hand it's you're then confronted with the position that in in the actual struggles that do seem to be going on in australia always seem to involve trade unions at some level mm. you know that the critique of the trade unions sometimes then turns into this almost messianic position where you're waiting for this pure class subject to emerge out of the blue where in reality what I'm trying to relate to is often workers in unions. And then there's a really different experience, right? You know, I think there's a fundamental different, different experience of what it means to be a member of the CFMEU and as opposed to what it means to be a member of TOGETHER. And I'm a member of TOGETHER, so as a public mm-hmm. servant. Yeah. But I guess the, the thing that I find so interesting um, about what, what you're saying is to the average member this doesn't seem these divisions that you're talking about in terms of viewpoint um, and that terrain of struggle doesn't seem obvious or often doesn't seem like as a terrain that you can engage with um, because there's often not that trade union presence on the ground and I think historically there would have been a time when divisions in the trade union movement required political debate in the workplace but I'm not sure if that's the case anymore
1: Uh for now, I mean, the, the exhaustion of, of um, the mainstream institutional left, I think, speaks to that mm. uh, reality that, that people face. Uh, and that's not a perpetual state of affairs. Um, who knows what the future will, will bring? Mm. Um, but I think it, what we've got to remember is that... Uh, union is not really a noun, it's 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 more a verb. Mm.
2: Um,
1: and the more that we talk of the union as um, the union office or just some of the senior office bearers within the union movement, the more that we're kind of um, removing possibilities of people mm. uh, on the ground acting together um, in union. And yeah. there are some interesting kind of... Um, movements that are happening at the moment where delegates and rank-and-file workers from various parts of uh, the movement are kind of getting together across uh, union boundaries and state-line boundaries and, and, and forming more organic connections and having more interesting arguments about where to next and what to do next. Mm. Um there's, a, there's an unofficial Unions Australia Facebook group. No, I'm not talking about the main ACTU Facebook page. Uh, it's got about 7,000 um, people involved in it, and the majority of them are, um, are fairly rank and file unionists.
0: And of course, a diversity of industries, right? Which is yes. the other thing. Like, I always, you know, you would have heard me kind of bang on about this on the podcast, but I think the kind of heterogeneous nature of the working class in Australia how different people's experiences are means yeah. we often don't see our struggles as being common, you know, or outside often family barbecues don't encounter yeah. each other as workers, right? And yeah. so I, I've got to admit that the out of all my social media engagements, Unions Australia, the Facebook group, where I probably have contacts with people from other industries that aren't, just aren't replicated in the Facebook groups I have around music or where I live or things like that. Yeah,
1: and I don't want to be a tech... Technological determinist here, just because that exists, everything is going to be good is not good reasoning. Mm. But you know, the, around the the penalty rates uh, decision, which is such an interesting moment in, in of itself, uh, there were interesting discussions that were beginning to to emerge on that page that involved widening the scope of possibility of of what workers. Do whether that was just discussions around various forms of general strike action, um, you know, which are useful to have people making those calls, but it's a far greater depth of work involved in actually making something like that happen. Yeah. But then, kind of next level down, detailed discussions around, um, you know, what sort of actions people could take or how it though a big General strike could occur. Mm. That's one kind of the glimmerings of, of, of hope. And then, even within um, the main uh, peak body, national peak body response to the uh, weekend rates decision, you've got, um, you've got I think, um, a really interesting thing where the Young Workers Centre in Victoria, what they did is they just called an open meeting. Of all hospitality workers
2: oh wow
1: workers in in Melbourne and I was at trades hall that night in in Melbourne when they they called it and they probably had about fifty to a hundred regular kind of um, hospitality workers turn up now I haven't that's
0: uh, fantastic
1: yeah I haven't managed to catch up with what happened next but just because there was this kind of higher level thing going on at the, the peak body which you know, there are some good, smart people making decisions around that sort of stuff, but again it's not enough because we need the you need the face-to-face organizing, you need the mass meetings, you need the collective bodies coming together um, so it can form structures. Um, that it was interesting that you know the Young Workers Centre just said stuff, we're just gonna do it, we're gonna call it out, we're gonna try and organise big and we're gonna see what happens. Now, even if that doesn't go anywhere further which would be a shame Mm. but just that that willingness to call that meeting in in of itself is a really positive thing so i guess the the one level was there are broader things kind of happening whether it's discussions amongst the cross industry lines and ignoring kind of hierarchies hierarchies within the trade union movement uh, and seeing what was kind of happening nationally in some different places there were some more interesting things that were going on over and above um, just the regular set piece sort of stuff that I must admit, Dave,
2: uh, mm.
1: I get a bit bored with as well. Like, it's good that people protest. We mm. need to protest. But, you know, you can only march up and down the hill uh, a certain number of times for the same result before it's just exercise. And,
0: but, and, and then for me, it's also this kind of quite atomized um, emailing and weekly petitions and these kind of things that yeah. don't like the, the the meeting you're talking about is really is bringing people together face to face right I think there's still a real virtue in that even though I agree we should be using technology and I, I think the entire um, class movement is not using things like apps effectively but. Yeah. But this kind of, you know, you get this email from your union or from, you know, the peak body, and you just kind of do this rote activity every week. It's it's atomized. It it keeps that atomized condition.
1: Mm. It's very like professional NGO kind of um, level of activity.
0: Has you know? I hear a lot of people talk about the influence of like the American SEIU. Yeah, is that true? Did the, has that had an impact in, in Australia in terms of unions and how strategy has been conceived?
1: I think that's a bit. I think that's a bit um, overblown in of itself in the sense that what it actually does is give organising a bad name rather than um, mm. provide uh, uh, um, rather than productive discussions around well, what is good organising strategy. For us to have power, um, I think the problem with the the problem with the organising model that has, uh, as we've understood and adapted in Australia from the SEIU, is that uh, there's there's kind of two levels that are problematic. One is, um, and it's not the SEIU model per se, but it's the kind of organising model that the the Australian Trade Union movement has adapted from America. Uh, And what it is is essentially a small organising model. Um, We've taken uh, a a bunch of Sol Alinsky's work, um, which is around organising small communities and kind of based mainly on... On, on funding from donors, mm. adapted that to the micro level of trying to organise workplace by workplace. Now, the skills that are taught in that about, um, ask, you know, open-ended questioning and action conversations are intrinsically useful for us if we're going to have workers run the world, but the strategy which, which they're set to, which is about... Um, uh, building up workplace-by-workplace workplace enterprise bargaining agreements is a strategy that is not ultimately going to allow workers to exercise any form of class-wide power. There'll be some interesting stories and some good wins, but it'll all be quite... It's the next level up from being atomized, it'll just form molecules.
2: Mm.
1: Um, and so one problem is that it's, it's not about big organising, it's about small organising. Um, the second thing that's come from that is the seiu model of organizing where there's been a i guess a bastardization of the justice for janitors campaign which um coming out of los angeles was quite amazing and quite quite powerful where you have you had a bunch of migrant workers from a whole all different contractors around the city of los angeles taking strike action and getting beaten up by cops and and having enough courage to win their fight against the top end of town, um, there's nothing wrong with um, that as as one inspirational example of of workers standing up. Um, What led to um, the problems with the SEIU model, as I've kind of seen, is that um, it's not the organising model, it's the trade-off that they have with employers, where they'll say, well, we won't... um, where they try and uh, trade things off about what workers will do or about what they will ask for, mm. uh, turn for neutrality under the American system, which is not an organising model. It's a model of trying to seek um, some degree of, of uh, reproachment mm. with a hostile employer
0: set. Yeah, kind, um, of, kind of a brokerage of, of social peace
1: yeah. and to the extent that that can grow the union, um, it, it doesn't it it doesn't really set the union up as uh, as one organization of workers, although it's like you know a subset of workers who are fighting on behalf of of the universal class that kind of really cuts down and narrows the avenues for solidarity there because you might mm-hmm. have the SEIAU saying, OK, well, we're going to support Kaiser Permanente um, in some sort of, like, state-based legislative thing where a whole bunch of the taxpayers or other people have to pay more money to that corporation, and then those workers will be able to exercise a genuine human right.
2: Mm.
1: It's, and it's kind of trading off... Uh, it's it's trading off workers against each other. So that that's a problem, although coming out of... You know, there's some interesting organizing material now coming out of the Sanders campaign. Where, I guess, because the U.S. is the, I don't know, I don't know why we look to it as as an example, or as a because mm. it's not really a great example in terms of organizing overall. But at least out of that disaster, there's some interesting writings coming out of um, the Sanders campaign and and how to maybe organize bigger rather than take this small organizing approach and some interesting things around, okay, just holding teleconferences with all sorts of workers, volunteers, and just giving them power and letting them do things and just seeing what happens and then uh, having large-scale mass meetings. They call them barnstorms around the country and building that up. And if if you're dealing with an atomized level, using kind of one-to-one messaging stuff so that you can then draw people into a collective discussion, into a meeting, into a meeting at someone's house or a mass meeting, so I just think that um, I I think that what's drawn the Australian trade union leadership to the SCIU model is that at least that is an example of a union that has grown in an otherwise problematic industrial relations setup, where a union could carve out a niche in an otherwise neoliberal economy. Mm. And if you don't have the ambition of overturning that neoliberal economy, you just give yourself a quite um, realist, then you think, well at least I can carve out a niche for my union mm. without changing everything else.
0: Because as that's- the as the Australian reminds us on a daily basis, union membership continues to decline.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's 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 a problem. I mean we're kind of lucky as a private sector blue collar union that over the last five years we've We've managed to not decline, um, but it's problematic that we haven't uh, grown massively. Um, so that that in of itself is something that really needs to be um, needs to be dealt with. But I think that what we need to see is the the secret to the growth in power of the trade union movement in in the of workers in this country is to not see declines or increases in trade union membership as uh, uh, an endpoint goal in itself, but an indication of the health of the state of economic democracy and, and people, and, and kind of as an indication of the rate of struggle. Mm. I and mean, That in itself is a thing that we need to look at, because if we can increase the rate of str- struggle, uh, make people, help people feel more confident to stand up, then the rest will follow.
0: So there's a question that immediately springs to my mind from that, Godfrey, which I think is is fascinating, is in this idea of, you know, looking for trying to increase more struggle, contacts between workers, real class composition organisation, what role does the Labour Party play in that? Because for someone of my politics, you know, the relationship between the trade union and the Labour Party, you know, is a boo-hiss relationship.
1: Yeah. And what I would get, and that's probably one of the other, um, not directly but indirectly one of the other um, points that I I would add to the podcast from the other day. I I think what the problem is um, is deeper than whether it's the Labor Party or not. Um, What I think the problem is in regards to politics and the trade union movement is the prioritisation of... Um, parliamentary politics Mm. over industrial struggle. And um, to the extent that that parliamentary politics is played through the Labor Party, um, then we see the Labor Party as the problem. But I'm of the view that uh, if you just prioritise the parliamentary struggle, uh, and change the colours of the football jerseys of the people on the field, we're not necessarily changing... Um, we're not getting to the heart of that which is wrong. Mm. Uh, and so in in the point that Karina Car- Garland and I wrote on, on Overland about the problematic nature of the um, progressive response to the penalty rates discussion, you know, we did very deliberately and call out um, the history of the appointments to the Fair Work Commission uh, and where they came from and, and that that's a creature of not only um, uh, uh, not only the previous Labor governments um, but also the system of of generating kind of union leaders then going off into various other points in, in government bureaucracy
0: mm. or but private enterprise
1: <laughs> Yeah, where that comes from I think the problem of where that comes from though is not um is not the labor party per se but substituting parliamentary politics for the industrial struggle and i i can see why some union leaders would want to do that because it's an easier way to prove to your members that you're getting something for them without having to do the hard work of get of of helping them organizing it's without Without putting your own house on the line, mm. uh, that's a scary thing to ask someone else to do. Without, um, you know, facing the bankruptcy of your own union through fines, without necessarily having the members feel like they've taken a scary action and lost, mm. it's it's a way of displacing that fear of industrial struggle, that angst, that that the, the butterflies we have in our stomach, and putting that onto the parliamentary political sphere. So, um, like. I think that that, that's the heart of the issue, that we put parliamentary politics above industrial struggle. And most of the union movement has done that mostly, but not exclusively through the Australian Labor Party.
2: Mm.
1: So therefore, that's the way that we... That's the visibility of the problem. Now, if we look to what we've seen globally... um, It's a hard balance because we can't ignore parliamentary politics, but if we prioritise it, then we're not going to win the struggle. Like, you know, take Greece. We've Mm -hmm. taken a corrupt bunch of social democrats who are administering austerity and replaced them with a largely honest bunch of socialists administering austerity. Yeah. Um, That's a problem still.
0: I I think that's... You know, one of the things I've been quite interested in in lately after reading an article from the 70s about arbitration is this long tradition, I think, that exists within the working class movement that essentially doesn't accept a critique of capitalism or doesn't understand just how over-determining capital accumulation is, and so sets the problem as a set of laws or a particular body of ideas that can be changed, and then there's another possibility – But when the chips are down, that often ends up in just the defence of capital. Like, I thought Sally McManus's speech at the National Press Club was remarkable in a whole range of ways. And Mm -hmm. I don't just want to be, you know, some kind of turd in the ointment, you know, some standard ultra-left kind of response. But still in that analysis, there's this vision of this world where labour and capital can have a kind of healthy agreement, as long as the laws are are tilted back in workers' favours, in workers' favour. And I think that's, at some level, it's a fundamental misunderstanding. And it's not just about being right or having the right theory. It actually leads to strategic and tactical orientations.
1: Yeah. Yeah, look, we need a world where labour has sovereignty over capital, not where capital has sovereignty over labour. And you can't ultimately treat people and a social construct of capital as partners. It doesn't make any form of sense. Either we run the world according to one person, one vote, or we run the world according to one dollar, one vote, and some people have heaps of dollars and some people have none. Um, There's no getting around that fundamental reality. There's all sorts of disagreements we can have about how we get there and what road we take. But I think part of that comes from the the the, the growth of the Australian trade union movement during um, during the early 20th century, and I think there's a degree to which the Australian trade union movement, as a whole, even down to the very fibres of the rank and file, have never really got over the perceived the 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 trauma of the perceived. losses of the 1880s and 1890s um strike wave and that um you know the australian trade union movement post those um those defeats was was down to less uh than its density today Mm. and rebuilt in terms of the trade union movement was rebuilt around the conciliation and arbitration system where there was some sort of legal guarantee in return for um uh, you know, Labor's place at the table, and I don't mean Labor in general, I mean mm. usually white men's place at the table. Yeah, uh, indeed. In return for a protectionist um, system, whether that's on tariffs or whether that's on people who look different coming into the country. Uh, and that's, you know, in the scheme of things, you know, 1890s, it's 120 years ago, that's it's only two lifetimes. Yeah. You know, that's still I think that's kind of still in our collective memories, and and we need to, we 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 lack. I think there's some interesting stuff that's emerging, but overall, we lack an imaginary that is is, is a socialist or post-capitalist or whatever you want to call it mm. uh, uh, image of the world. There's there's not the confidence there, and I think that's that partially explains what happened in the 1970s and the 1980s where where labor grew so powerful within within the sphere of within the economic sphere that its very power contributed towards the instability mm-hmm. uh, of the capitalist system And the people who were trying to grapple with that as the union leaders and the political leader, like the social democratic political leaders at the time, came from that very much creatures of the 1880s, 1890s kind of thing. There would be old-time leaders who who would remember the early days of that system around, and they were trying to grapple with... um, what happens next? And what the other was probably only two things that could have happened next because the it, either we we leapt forward to mm. a new form of economic system or we had to just cut ourselves off at the knees in order to maintain the existing
0: system. And what the happened? latter is what happened.
1: The latter is what happened. We jumped, we jumped backwards pre 1880s, 1890s rather than trying to jump forwards. And, and you I've- know what? I, I don't know if I would have made a different decision if you didn't know what yeah. the world could look like other than maybe latter-day Soviet Union, you would be struggling to work out where to go.
0: Yeah, I, I, I think that's... Because that's one of the things that's becoming more obvious, it's so easy just to kind of, like, go, the problem was the Accord, the problem was, 19, was the early 80s, the problem was Hawke and Keating, and not understand the kind of deeper conditions that contributed to, to do that, where Keating seemed to be the only person that had the vision, right? Yeah.
1: Keating's out to, Like Keating is out today saying liberal economics is at a dead
0: end. Yeah, I saw that. So I, I do have to... I think it is worth pointing out that there were people who were making critiques, so comrades, yes. you know... And interestingly, it was, com- like, people I know well, so friends of mine that were unemployed in Wollongong in the early 80s who were in Wollongong out of workers they were making some of the sharpest critiques of the Accord because as unemployed people they felt, you know, on one hand, you know, they were incredibly politically and theoretically literate um, communists, and on mm. the other hand, as unemployed people, they were excluded from the deal. You know, yeah, so, I
1: think when you're on the fringe of a system, you've got a better sense of being able to see the system as a whole. its mm. limitations.
0: There, there was something you raised that I did just want to press you about. You know, you made a critique about the early arbitration system as being tied into white Australia, basically. Now, there seems to be a kind of... I I think the Australian labour movement and labourism in Australia has always had a racial and nationalist core Mm. to it. Mm. There seems more and more that the slogans that are being raised at the moment, a kind of defence of Aussie jobs and Aussie industries... Do you yeah. think there's more of that argument being being made now? Why do you think that's happening? How can those fears of unemployment be addressed without collapsing into this kind of racialized nationalism?
1: Yeah. Well, it's it's not. It is contested and it always has been, but it's it's a dominant uh, at times, at least, been a dominant part of of the of broader union movement and kind of is is also part of some of the um attitudes and and kind of a reflection of 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 the context in which people find themselves in you know our we have two taglines as a union one is our old school unity is strength you know which is a really important message to have
2: Mm. and
1: the other one that that is more recent that we kind of always come back to as a way to educate our union base is that every worker counts Mm. and why we do so much of our work with um, temporary and recently arrived migrants in in, um, some very difficult to organise parts of the economy because...
0: Could you tell us um, about that, Godfrey, because that sounds super interesting. Yeah, so,
1: I mean, we're currently um, uh, organising quite extensively into... because we've got coverage in food processing and manufacturing and, and distribution... We're trying to really spread our footprint into the supermarket supply chain because, frankly, if workers can control the overall food production supply chain in the country, then we've got uh, a much higher degree of power in the country. Um, and, it, a, and at the farm and food production end of the spectrum, you've got a lot of pressure um, to provide kind of very cheap um basic commodities into people to maintain integrity of the whole system so you know you rely on a cheap nature in terms of uh what you take from the soil and and the world around you and you kind of rely on really cheap uh disposable labor hence um what we find with uh working holiday makers and seasonal workers and we've decided that what we need to do not because it's Really easy, it's a lot of work, and it's very difficult organising, but we need to confront that part of the system in order to try and um, make a contribution to an Australia where every person's treated with dignity and respect. So, you know, we're organising into the food supply chain in, you know, tomato glass houses, um, fruit and vegetable farms, uh, those kind of places to really build up a, a strong militant um, food union. Uh, Fantastic. Not, it's our only area of, of coverage, and I, I don't want to um, say that, but we think that there's a real that all our members can benefit if we build a really strong um, union on at the farm gates, in food processing, in the big warehouses for the big supermarkets, and and down the chain. That's that's really critical. So um, we've done a lot of stuff, like we we had um, 150 odd. Vanuatu NIVAN workers joined the union in the northern suburbs of Adelaide uh, it, at a place called Divine Right, but I think it's now known as Perfection Fresh. Uh, this is all in the public domain. They joined together
2: mm.
1: and the employer said, unless you all resign out of the union, uh, you're not going to be able to come back here uh, in six months' time after you've finished.
2: Unbelievable.
1: Uh, seasonal. It's yeah. a very, like, Repetition We've got a seasonal worker program in the South Pacific that now imports labour in, into Australia, like it's the 1880s, 1890s again, yeah. um, six month rotations. And then the workers themselves, they're like, they the way that it works, they get mostly award wages compared mm. to what happens with a lot of backpackers, and holiday makers, they get absolutely um, stung on the deductions from their award wages. So mm. um, they'll pass well over the odds for housing in, in remote and regional areas. They'll pay crazy rates for a five-minute minibus from their housing that they have to pay for to their work.
2: Unbelievable. They'll,
1: they'll be in, like treated like infants in terms of the signs that you have up in the houses and how people are supposed to keep them and all that kind of stuff. So they get really done... Um, in that process and then they get okay six months you're here and then go and then stay home for six months and then come back out so we've got a long tradition actually we're trying to up that of building our links within the asia pacific trade union movement using that international solidarity to kind of change australia so that kind of white australian narrative it's always kind of been there and contested like it does and I think it relates onto someone's gut feel as to how realistic it might be or how necess- how realistic, rather, it might be to to win socialism. And if you go, oh, we can't win a democratic socialist state, maybe we can at least try and hive off a little bit of the world for us. Mm. Um, and so the, there's, a, there's a kind of a... You know, people want to have jobs where they work and they, they want to know that their neighbours and their communities looked after. So there's some... It's a it's a it's a hard thing because there's a genuineness in people wanting to make sure that their community is looked after, mm. and, and that can be overlaid in very regressive ways as well. With um, that meaning that we have to like kick out other people or, or just prioritise us and uh, as a group, mm. and be nasty to other people who are outside that group. So it's a contest, and it's a contest actually that doesn't neatly break across. Broadly understood factional lines within the union movement and and the Australian labor movement. You can have um, People on the left who will stand up and say we just need to fight for um, Aussie jobs or local jobs and whatever else and you can have people who aren't really right but are on the right so to speak Mm. No, We've got to make sure that Every worker counts, and that uh, anyone who comes into this country gets the same rights and conditions, and is treated with dignity and respect. And we've got to focus our energies on that end. Um, so it's kind of interesting because it all—it's—it's—it's uh, it's, it's messy. It's entangled. It's not—it's not neat. Um, and that's where we've got to—that's what we've got to deal with. I think one other one other element that um, that I had issue with. Um, with the uh, the comments on the penalty rates kind of protest, and it's not, you know, I'm a big fan of the work that the CFMEU does, but I think um, one of the things that we've got to um, deal with is the fact that the reason why they had all the basically all the workers at those protests, um, other than and we should be really clear here they do a hell of a good job at organizing inner civic and big construction sites yeah. and they fight really tough for those people and do a great job um at it and it's an example that myself and many unions need to take on board um but there was a pre-existing set of protests there was a pipeline, um for the uh, ABCC kind of reheated uh, laws Mm. that are coming up again. And and they've got a position where they've got um, well-organized, blue-collar, large-scale workforces within our CBD areas, and it is of itself a strategic battle in the front between Labor and capital. Uh, and it is of value for the movement. But a lot of other unions might, for instance, have a lot of smaller kind of scale workplaces on the urban or kind of blue-collar fringe of cities. Yeah. Uh, and they, and the, so there's differences in capacities and abilities to turn people out and various different strengths in that regard. So, like, if we had a teacher strike on that day... Because the QTU or the AEU in Victoria were, blowing to the state government and they wanted their and they were fighting for the new EBA and that strike day coincided with okay we're going to call the penalty rates discussion on that day, there would have been like thirty thousand teachers mm. and people. So I think people's kind of views as to what's going on is governed by the context of. Um, other organising currents that are going on, and just because an organising current might not be visible at not eddying up in that moment, doesn't mean it's not there below the surface kind of kind of happening and kind of going.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so there are different actions that are kind of targeted towards this, and, and different timings that are targeted towards the strength of, um, of different unions that we've got to bear in mind and kind of um, take...
0: That's really interesting. I've, got, I've, I've kept you for about 50 minutes now, Godfrey, but I've got two questions I'd like to ask you, if that's still okay.
1: Right. A lot of my stuff is random, so I'm sure you can cut it down. No,
0: I, I, I think it. I think it's brilliant. Um, I am worried about the, the cyclone cutting out the call um, at some point too, though. I guess like, it's you know...
1: Organising in like capitalism. <laughs> yeah.
0: Living in the disaster. Um, yeah. You frame a lot of this conversation, interestingly, in the question of strategies and tactics. But I yeah. guess I then, I guess, goes to who's making those strategic and tactical calls? Like, is yeah. part of what you're talking about premised on the return of some kind of Communist Party or political organisation where this discussion can take place, would be my yeah. first question. And my second one is, you know, kind of for the listeners who've, who are interested in this, where what do you see kind of as practically unfolding as as positive for the class struggle over two thousand and seventeen?
1: Yeah look, um, yeah, to the extent which i'm I'm thinking about tactics and strategies, I'm always thinking about um, how more people can be involved with that stuff. Um, and I'm kind of attracted to the idea of returning to a 1850s, 1860s kind of idea of of the communist, which uh, was a network of people yep. through various different parties, um, yep. bodies, institutions, organisations. And I don't know exactly what that looks like. Yep. Um, otherwise, I'd probably be trying to do that.
0: I think there's really an idea of the party in the 19th century, not as... Uh, like a, a specific organisation, but more like a faction of society or a bunch of relationships that would go across multiple clubs and different meeting spaces. And that seems not just more p- pleasant, but actually far more realistic than if we're going to get everyone together in the same one formal organisation with a program.
1: Yeah, and that's not to say, like, times change. Maybe there will be a point in time when that needs to be formalised in some way. But I think for now, it's, um, you know, if we've got various comrades in various unions, workplaces, parties, and and where they are now is where they've found themselves, I'm more concerned about networking those people up Mm. around a kind of at least a common idea of what the world could look like if we weren't doing things for profit and just trying our darndest to... um, uh, push that common front across in different venues, forums, parties, and, and seeing where we can get and trying. Uh, I'm reaching here because I don't know exactly what it is.
0: No, that's fine. No one does. I don't think. But
1: I think we've got to find a way of talking to each other. And I think we're kind of doing that. So I can't, I'm not, I shouldn't say we've got to do this. It's kind of emerging where, you know, there'll be people in different cities, different factions, different parties, different unions who will talk and kind of share a, a a set of common principles and end goals, and that I think will take... ..that will create a new common sense if if we fight for
0: mm. it. That's a brilliant answer. And how... What do you think can happen in 2017 to help that come together?
1: Um, well... Yeah, look, you never can spot um, with any degree of certainty a, a, a bushfire unless you've kind of gone out and deliberately lit it yourself. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, so, look, I, I I prefix this by saying I don't know for sure because I can't see into the future. Mm-hmm. Uh, although I did go to the Essendon Hawthorne game on the weekend and tell everyone beforehand that Essendon was going to win by 20 points and <laughs> they won by 25. So, you know, I've got some track record at forecasting sometimes. Um, and the stop clock is right twice a day if it's analog, um, maybe only once if it's digital or not at all. Uh, so I think what would be interesting that all emerge, I think there can be some really interesting struggles, um, and I'm very attracted to the kind of stuff that you're talking about with, with Right to the City because um, I think organising people where they live um, mm. is a really important thing to do and it will there'll be fronts, there'll be people trying to privatise public spaces or or privatise the air above them and, and, and suck all of the value out of the community and sell it off themselves, and Um, I think that struggle, what it is is a struggle around land and our relationships to land.
2: Mm.
1: So fundamental, and it gets to the very fact that we've never really stopped being a prison colony. And and because that goes so deep to where, like, and the birth of, you know, we're a product of the birth of capitalism, and the birth of capitalism came out of that kind of um, dispossession of people. so. I think there's a lot of lot of um, potential in, in the struggle around land and I and that can be localized around various developments but I think the general locking out of of our generation from being able to own a little bit of land
2: mm.
1: is going to create some really interesting broader struggles around the distribution of the profit from rising land values. And not that they'll always necessarily rise, but the profit of of who benefits from land and call into question some of those ownership.
0: And the huge amount of debt and the extraction that happens of the wage through mortgage debt as well, I think, is is, is something that, like like I keep on thinking about, you know, say the housing market does collapse, right, and people are left with these debts for houses that are no longer worth that... What kind of politics are we going to have that can respond to that? Because people will keep on having huge chunks of their wages extracted by the banks for a place that they live in that was also meant to be an asset for their retirement that they plunged their wages into that's no longer worth much, right? Like, we can't not contest that.
1: Yes, yeah. And I've got a a piece coming out in the next uh, uh, edition of Griffiths Review with Sam Warman about land and... Whatnot that kind of conceptualises um, the exchange value of land um, as like a, a a black hole that is is crushing down the space in our society for the use value of land into a smaller and smaller space that's kind of just deplacing so much of our regular ongoing life and I think yeah. um, struggles around land uh, um, whether they flare up with a with a capital F this year i don't know but i think there'll be some emerging spot fires around that and i think that whether it's this year or in the next few years they'll link up more and more um, yeah. around that. i think the other area um is potentially a partially a, a worker struggle part like it's both politics of daily life and politics of production um a struggle around energy democracy i think that um could be a really interesting um, space to also build a post-capitalist kind of conception and imagination of a way of owning things differently. That can be really concrete, like really local level stuff, and, and state level, and national level, and big questions about about the world. Um, you know, we've got a lot of interesting things that have come out of the ETU uh, around public ownership of electricity and. What I find interesting about that is kind of start at like the discussion can start from, you know, a very mainstream trade union. We need to elect the Labor Party to defend the existing status quo of some public ownership electricity because it would be worse if we privatised it. And you can take that discussion, right, and that set piece and turn it into a broader discussion around um, the people having power and owning um, these these resources and doing it in a way that's not capitalist and kind of turning into a way of like firing the capitalist in one section of our economy and, and, and turning into a completely different discussion around um, transformation as we know it, whether that's technological or, or mainly it's all about the relationships um, that, that people have around technology. So I think that Particularly with the closure closure of Hazelwood, um, uh, that's just happened in the last couple of days. All this stuff that's happening around um, the energy transformation that we're living through, that, that um, people are facing, uh, whether they're in coal jobs, um, the end of a, a way of life, um, yeah. the end of certainty around you know what is. Some very high-paid jobs in struggling communities, uh, and not knowing where to go. I think that discussion around energy democracy is is probably the disc, is the revamped discussion about future or past. Do we try and go back and and reheat coal and ignore what's happening in the world around us? Yeah. Um, do we or do we jump forward into a future where? Um, where there are good union jobs and democratically owned and managed um, electricity resources that that are that are owned socially, um, that that are, um, are not subject to this kind of extractivist monopoly rents that are then replicated with this kind of extractivist attitude towards yeah. land and the, the community. So, I think kind of land energy democracy uh, and some emerging struggles on that, just because it can so mutate between the boringly mainstream as we know it now and quickly snowball into something else. Um, I think that's probably the, the second element that, that we'll see. And I think the third probably element that, that will be of note, that will be of, of interest... Is potentially some struggles around, um, uh, in in what I deal with at least, uh, because I don't want to speak to whatever else, but I think that we'll see some interesting struggles in in warehousing and logistics in the supermarket supply chain
2: Mm. um,
1: in the southeast corner of Australia this year. And we had a conference today of um, Victorian Tasmanian supermarket warehouse workers, in, in our union building, uh, and it was ran parallel with a conference and kind of merged in together at really critical points of farm workers and delegates uh, in the same building. So I'd be really interested to see where um, that goes over the next few months as well.
0: That's that's amazing. And also, it seems to be a kind of global debate that's been happening around these three things as well, right? The right to the city around energy, but also yeah. an interest in logistics and struggles around logistics and the role that plays it both in contemporary capitalism, but also as a site of power.
2: Yeah.
0: Um, because in, in a world of global commodity chains, logistics matters.
1: It does. And we're going to see greater automation in logistics as well, um, because... Uh, you know, it is a site of vulnerability um, and we're going to see reactions against that sort of automation that, that's coming. Um, although ideally, like any good organiser, I would like to make myself um, redundant and, <laughs> and live in a world where, you know, I would like to live in a world of the Star Trek economy where I can just push a button and get what I want um, and then retire to some sort of like kind of beach renaissance planet somewhere
0: so that that does sound like you know I know in a personal capacity at least you're endorsing um fully automated luxury communism there godfrey
1: look i'm a i'm a big fan of you know i think work can be meaningful but just like i wouldn't narrow meaningful work down to the wage labor criteria totally. i'm not going to give capitalists that legitimacy
0: i think that's that's such like it's not just a flippant point right because there seems to be this long tactical we'll have to wind this up soon but there seems to be this long tactical retreat into like the defense of the class has meant the defense of wage labor as something great and important where you know the promise that neoliberalism offered to people while it was so attractive was it promised an escape out of work now that was bullshit but the legitimate desire is still there for a world free from work
1: yeah so my like my big Hope, and maybe it's because my name is Godfrey and uh, I've got some romanticised view of, of the 19th century when it was probably a real shitbox time to be alive. <laughs> um, but my big hope is, like, let's... Can we get back to fighting for, um, as a union movement of workers, as, a, as an intermediary step, let's fight for shorter working hours. Indeed. I don't want... I mean, I don't have kids. I would like to have kids one day, but my ambition for them is certainly to not work longer than me, that's for sure.
0: Oh, and I, look, I can say the biggest source of upset in my life at the moment is being away at work from my son and I've got a, another kid on the way. Like, yeah. you know, it, it's like, for, and I know so many people deal with this, it is, it is almost like a physical pain that I go through every day.
2: Yeah.
0: You know, and, and, and it, is, it is. And then it impacts on your relationships with the people that you love because yeah. you're exhausted and stressed from work.
1: So I think, given where we are at the, not that I will see this kind of flaring, not that I forecast this flaring up in 2017 per se, but struggles around um, a common struggle around a reduced working week or reduced working hour I think, is another front where we can combine the fact that you know Brisbane is experiencing a cyclone right now and mm. uh, need to slow down the economy with people's um, with people who are overworked. Yep. With people who are underworked and, and want opportunities that yeah. aren't there, with graduates today facing like a scrabble, a scramble to get work. Yeah. With um with building workers in the CBD fighting for a shorter working week and mm. university students nearby fighting for some form of working week, I think it's the thread that we could um, work on as our kind of um, as our cross party cross. Know, our old school 1850s kind of party definition kind of project that, that can speak to workers where they live today uh, and connect into something bigger.
0: Yeah, that, 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 look, our, our comrades in Wollongong used to have a shorter working week action committee. And yeah. I, re- I remember there was when the ACTU Congress or whatever it is met in Wollongong, must have been the late 90s, there was maybe early 2000s, there was a, a side meeting that hundreds of people were there. And this idea, it, it does respond to people. And it yeah. responds to a real, a real material need for a life worth living.
1: Mm, mm. And I, I think it fits with what we're facing in, in the future um, uh, with, with some pretty key technological developments that are coming down, um, that are coming down the pipeline. But You're not I don't
0: burning think, the planet apart. Yeah, I
1: don't think it's an accident that the rise of the neoliberal era coincided with the time when we stopped um, trading product, and I don't, I don't mean trading, is in terms of trading, but there's a whole struggle, but largely stopped trading productivity, where we stopped trading productivity gains for increased leisure time, mm. and started trading productivity gains for um, just uh, wage rises, mm. the, uh, and now we're not even getting leisure time or any of significant wage increases, That's and true. we're told that, you know, the my biggest problem with the penalty rates decision: workers can just work more hours yeah. to make up the wage. That's that's crazy. So there's some interesting things. Watch out for a um, statement on penalty rates coming from the ENGO movement as well.
0: From uh, the rich movement?
1: From from the environmental movement. Okay, there's yeah. Some peak bodies around that talking about penalty rates and cutting it back and making work workers work longer hours being problematic for the climate. Well.
0: Godfrey, thank you very much for giving us your time today. I think that's been really, really fascinating.
1: No worries. Thanks for having me, Dave. Sorry for being so...
0: It was brilliant. Listeners, you've been listening to Living the Dream. We've been talking with Godfrey Mose, who is the General Branch Assistant Secretary of the National Union of Workers. You can find him on Twitter at GEMOASE. He has a blog which is tradeunion.wordpress.com. Hasn't been updated, shamefully, since 2014. But there's other writing of yours in Overland. And you've got a new piece coming, Griffith Review, did you say?
1: Yes, yeah,
0: I do. All right, that's that's really been brilliant. Thank you so much for that, Godfrey. Thanks, Dave. All right, See bye. You. Unfortunate for me, I couldn't afford to be fortunate.
1: Shit, more like the kid misfortune never missed. According to the landlord and as Piss, trying to get this porridge recording hits the download only show support supporting this but you really don't know how the and gets and i didn't just come here to moan and bitch grown folks spitting for our own kids benefits it's the return of the poor man's rap for those who don't own homes off coke rap there ain't enough love so we're showing
0: that so the old school cats now broke from rap it's mostly the poor that most mcs ignore when most of these mcs were born a group of poor but well, we slave in the old workforce and pay for a government that don't work for us. Oh,
1: I, am just trying to get my Lord So tired, fighting to get my, trying to get my Alright, though for me lately it don't phase me. Yeah. All right Cause I make money, money don't make me. Fortunately, I
0: believe that we can all agree is what it is not what we thought it'd be and if what i live ain't what i'm called to be i must have mistrained my psychology and it's a mystery ain't it exists among the miscreated history just like a train without a destination we need food clothes and shelter so we hustle till we old and helpless and if you do only go for the golden wealth you're still alone cause you don't know yourself at the end of the day Still gotta eat, still gotta feed the kids, still gotta light and heat and crib I overstand that, nobody planned that, and single mothers asking where the fuck that man at But life demand that we do it for love, from student to dog, from school to the clubs, it goes Oh my, oh, I'm just trying to get my
1: Lord, I'm so tired, I'm fighting to get mine, trying to get my Money, money don't make me. Oh, my oh, just trying to get my Lord out. So so fighting to get my, trying to get my, oh my. Lord out for me lately. It don't phase me. As yeah. oh I make
2: money, money don't